1: This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business.
2: Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our military who are tuning in over the internet and also new listeners in Silicon Valley, Chicago and Boston. Thank you for being with us. In just a moment, former CEO of Pepsi Cola and Apple Computer and lifelong entrepreneur, Mr. John Scully will be joining us to talk about the transformative technologies which are going to shake up the way we live and work the same way the internet, personal computers, and mobile phones did. And we're going to find out what companies can do to adapt faster and more nimbly. But before Mr. Scully joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. John Scully III was born in New York City and spent his childhood between his mother's native country, Bermuda, and New York. He earned his undergraduate degree from Brown University and his MBA from Wharton. Scully joined Pepsi-Cola as a trainee in 1967. Three years later, he became the company's youngest vice president of marketing. Determined to dethrone Coca-Cola, Scully launched an all-out assault, which included the landmark Pepsi generation ad campaign, the first move to plastic soda bottles and larger economy sizes, the Pepsi Challenge taste test, in-home product testing, and other innovations. Then 10 years later, after he joined Pepsi, he was named the youngest president and CEO in the company's history. But by 83, Scully was ready to take on a new challenge. On the invitation of founder Steve Jobs, Scully became CEO of Apple Computer, and annual revenue soared from $800 million to $8 billion under his direction. But as differences between Jobs and Scully escalated, Jobs exited the company, and by 1993, Scully was tendering his resignation. From here, Scully parlayed his experience at PepsiCo and Apple by starting the venture capital firm of Scully Brothers with siblings Arthur and David. Their list of successful startups is long and impressive, but in recent years, Scully has turned his attention to healthcare and mobile technology markets, and we'll hear more about that later in today's program. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, a business icon who says, adapt fast or face extinction, Mr. John Scully. Welcome to the program, Mr. Scully.
3: Well, thank you, Rebecca. Nice to be with you.
2: Now, first of all, congratulations on the success of your book, Moonshot, which is a must read for any business that wants to capitalize on on advice you've charged companies a lot of money for. (laughs) I I thought uh, maybe we could start today's program with having you explain what a moonshot is and and why they're important.
3: Sure. Well, moonshot is a well-understood metaphor in Silicon Valley, and it really traces back to the inspiring mission that President John F. Kennedy gave the nation in the 1960s when he said, we're going to put a man on the moon and return him safely within the decade, and we did in 1969. And that, of course, created the foundation technologies for what we know today is everything digital as we moved from analog technology, which couldn't possibly have fit into a rocket to get all the way to the moon and wasn't accurate enough, even if it could, to be able to do the kind of telemetry navigation that it required for a moon mission. So a moonshot more recently would be Let's say when Tim Berners-Lee created the World Wide Web and made the Internet accessible for non-technical people. Or when Google created a way to search content on the Web and we had an entirely new concept of how we could access information. Or Steve Jobs creating the iPhone and it changed everything. is now the cultural instrument of our era. So these are moonshots, which means that for the moonshot, the world is very different after the moonshot and there are only a small number of uh, technology innovations that I guess could be called moonshot and I decided to write my book moonshot because I think we are in an exceptional time in the many decades that I've been in business I've never quite seen anything that is comparable to the exponential growth of several technologies that reinforce one another for example Uh, We all know about cloud computing, and yet 10 years ago, very few of us did. Mobility, ever since 2007 with smartphones, with the iPhone, uh, that has changed the way in which we do most things in our life today. But most importantly, the unstructured data analytics, which is now possible, means that we have ways to completely change the customer experience of all kinds of products and services, and that same unstructured data analytics going over High-speed telecommunications means that we can look forward to what is being called the digitization of work, and that is uh, linked with a new era known as the Internet of Things, and the Internet of Things means that sensors are going to be built into just about everything. When I joined Silicon Valley back in the early 80s, it was in the early days of the microprocessor, and we've seen with Moore's Law how that has changed the world decade after decade, but sensors are a miniaturized little tiny devices that are able to capture everything from heat to sound to uh, pulses in uh, measuring various biometrics on a human being, to being able to track light, being able to track uh, almost everything. For example, inside your smartphone, there are probably at least 10 or 12 sensors. Uh, Inside of a jet engine on an aircraft today, probably 200 sensors, which are tracking the performance of an engine that's flying over the ocean in terms of its fuel consumption and the safety of the passengers on board. So these little sensors are communicating not to people, but they're commuting machine, uh, communicating machine to machine. And then we're getting into a new era of technology, which is called deep learning or machine learning. And these things are going to dramatically change our world. And that's what I write about is what is the impact of all of these technologies, because it can be pretty confusing if you just look at them as technologies. It becomes pretty clear as you look at the impact of what it means. And that's what I expose and try to unpack for the reader, particularly entrepreneurs in my book, Moonshot.
2: Yeah, let me ask you, though, Don't they, aren't these moonshots a bit risky? I mean, when you set out to do something truly innovative, something that's going to disrupt life and work as we know it, the opportunity for failure is enormous. So how does a company uh, that's risk adverse get around that?
3: Well, if a company is too risk-averse, they may well uh, find themselves left out of it. Uh, because what what is happening with these the moonshot is one big, major impact, regardless of which of these technologies we're talking about. And that big impact is that we're seeing a market power shift from large incumbent companies that have traditionally – had major franchises in industry after industry around the world, and now customers, because businesses are only as valuable as our customers, customers are more influenced by the opinions of other customers than they are by the traditional messages of these incumbent companies. And that has pervasive impact on everything as we look forward into the future. Every industry, every product or service category is exposed to change because customers if they like something they're going to tell others about it and because of the viral effect of these wireless technologies and data analytics and uh, the ability to use the cloud in a reliable efficient way it enables us to get the message out very rapidly what customers opinions are and we're seeing entirely new companies uh... redefining industries and there are many examples that i give in, in the book moonshot but importantly i have many conversations, many stories uh, that I was able to capture with uh, entrepreneurs I know and and others I wanted to meet, went out and uh, found out how to get a hold of them. And so this is a book about uh, what successful entrepreneurs learned along the way. And most importantly, because you talked about risk-taking, in our culture, we give permission to fail. There's really no other culture in the world that gives permission to fail. In other cultures, People will say, well, gosh, you failed, so why should I work with you again? In our culture, our first reaction is, that's interesting, so what did you learn? (laughs) That cultural advantage that we have, which means that you can actually exploit failure. Failure can actually become a resource.
2: Well, that's a very good point, and we're going to talk about that when we come back from our first break. And when we do come back, we're going to find out where the next moonshots are likely to appear. You're listening to The Costa Report.
4: Big Data is being generated by everything around us all the time. Every digital process and social media exchange produce it. Systems, sensors and mobile devices transmit it. Big Data is arriving from multiple sources with ever-increasing velocity, volume and variety. It's becoming the world's newest resource for competitive advantage allowing decision-making to move from the elite few to the empowered many. The escalating demand for insights requires a fundamentally new approach to architecture, tools, and practices. To extract meaningful value from big data, you need optimal processing power, analytics capabilities, and skills. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash big data today. That's www.ibm.com slash big data.
2: I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars, recent winners of the best sparkling wine in the U.S. in the Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championship. Congratulations, Scott. Thank
5: you, Rebecca. Thanks for
2: having me. So what is it about your Brut Cuvée that beat all the other competitors around the world?
6: We really focus on creating an expression of the Santa Lucia Highlands and doing it the right way. And when you control the process from the beginning to the end and you have talent like Michelle and top-tier grapes, they really shine through. This was a worldwide competition. It was definitely a humbling experience. We were in a room with producers that have been making wine for over 100, 200 years and was a huge honor to have Tom Stevenson give us the best US sparkling wine award we fared really well overall we had three wines win best of class which was great
7: visit the caraccioli tasting room on dolores street in carmel by the sea or find us online at caracciolicellars.com or reach us by phone 831-622-7722
3: When you need legal help, call on the Angel. It's a fact. We'll all need help to resolve a legal matter of one kind or another. When you find yourself in need of legal help, call on Angel Hess, Attorney at Law. She's been helping people with legal documents for over 20 years. Now, Angel has earned her Master's in Legal Studies and Juris Doctorate and is licensed to practice law for you.
8: I'm Angel Hess, Attorney at Law. With my help, we can resolve your legal matters quickly and efficiently. I will listen to your needs and keep you informed of the pros and cons of each legal strategy. We will find the best course of action for you and if i can't help you then i will help you find someone who can
3: and today angel hess has an angelic offer for each of you ksco listeners and only uksco listeners a free half hour consultation that's right just pick up the phone and call her with your legal matter mention ksco and get your free consultation today when you find yourself in need of legal help call on angel l hess attorney at law in santa cruz at 831-426-8536 or
1: www.santacruzlegal.net Want low prices, great savings, and excellent customer service? Look no further than Ben Lomond Market.
9: My name is Meg McLean. I am the supervisor of the deli, and I also work as a meat cutter in our meat department. Our deli is wonderful. We have a self-serve salad bar, fresh, beautiful vegetables and fruits and dressings for your delight. We have a help-yourself hot case where you can do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But we also continue to make meals for you. So if you want the rice bowl or the chicken meal, we are very happy to do that for you. Everything is made fresh in-house every day. Beautiful meats barbecued outside. We have fresh salads made every day. It's a wonderful, wonderful deli. In a hurry, you don't want to wait in line. We have our cold grab-and-go. Sandwiches ready made, salads already packaged up with utensils and salad dressing. Twice-baked potatoes, little containers of salads, potato salad, macaroni salad. Dips, corn dogs, enchiladas, all kinds of things. You have to come into Bellamy Market and try us.
1: A proud member of Think Local First, Santa Cruz County. Mm -hmm.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former CEO of Pepsi Cola and Apple Computer and legendary entrepreneur, Mr. John Scully. And before the break, you were talking about the culture in the United States, which tolerates failure, uh, which isn't true elsewhere. So in your view, has been, has this been responsible for the large number of moonshots which have come out of the U.S.?
3: Absolutely. I mean, we see uh, highly educated people in other parts of the world Uh a number of them come to Silicon Valley and end up taking on major senior-level positions. And yet I remember giving a speech in India some years ago in Mumbai, and the the question came from the audience, well, we have all of these highly trained Indian engineers who have been so successful in Silicon Valley, and they come back to India. Why is it we haven't created a Facebook or a Google or, or an Apple? And I think the answer is not that you lack talent. It's that you lack a culture that is open to people experimenting, trying something. If it doesn't work, you don't get punished. So if you think back to the big success stories, uh, even the most successful companies are exposed of becoming victims of their own success. Then, how is it that Intel and Microsoft, two great companies, very talented people work in those companies, and they dominated the personal computer industry during the 1990s, during the early days of the World Wide Web, Yet, both of those companies missed the era of mobility. And you say, how is that possible? And I think it was possible because they became victims of their success. It was new companies where entrepreneurs were questioning, well, isn't there a better way to do things? And mobility was an entirely new industry, and it was one that you would think would have been at the advantage of the incumbents to be able to scale into it, and yet, there were new entrants who ended up defining this mobile era that we live in today. And this will probably happen again. And it's because we give permission to fail. And the only reason that small companies are uh, so successful is because they do things that big companies just can't maneuver fast enough to do. Big companies.
2: Isn't this, but let let me ask you this, isn't this normal for a company? I mean, we're Pavlovian by nature. If you do something that's successful, then you want to repeat it. And so as you get larger, you continue to repeat the thing that you get goodies for. You get dopamine in your brain for succeeding. So you, 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 eventually those behaviors inside a company become institutionalized. And it's very hard to change a corporate DNA, isn't it?
3: You're absolutely right. And that's a great observation. And think of it this way. Uh, the one thing that all big organizations have in common is that they empower the middle managers with the authority to say no. And really does anyone have on their own in big organizations the authority to say yes. You have to go through a series of protocols and meetings and commitment committees and things of this sort. So it, it's really bureaucratic to get a yes in a big organization. And it's really easy to get a no. And that's a very simplified way of thinking about why is it that Young, new, small companies that carry no baggage uh, are able to start with a clean sheet of paper and say, gee, I wonder if there's a better way to do things. And what I describe in Moonshot is that you start with the customer. Because of this era where the customer is in power, where the customer opinion counts so much, you want to solve a customer problem. So the big opportunity that I talk about is the business plan is really obsolete as a strategic idea. The business plan is for budgeting purposes. The customer plan is what defines the breakout opportunity of can a customer focus business attract new customers, retain those customers, monetize those customers, satisfy those customers in some unique way. It's all about the customer plan.
2: So you and I come from a time when we used to, do you remember writing up a three and five year business plans? It's inconceivable to people these days that we would do that.
3: It it really is, and and here's what (laughs) what, uh, really amazed me is that look at all the work that was put into writing, even the annual business plan, which could take months to write it, and it might be a 70- or 80-page document.
2: Absolutely.
3: And then then the next year, uh, you do a summary of what happened the previous year, and you do it in about a page. And I used to think, well, why is it that when you look backwards, you can write in one page what happened, and yet when you look forward, you have to write 70 pages and spend months doing it? And the answer is that you have a different perspective when you're looking back than you do looking forward. And so you've got to learn how to look forward, and that's a lot about what I talk about. Something I learned working with Steve Jobs called Zooming, that was what Steve called it. It was called Zoom Out, Connect the Dots, uh, find different domains that may not have anything uh, obvious in common, but Steve was brilliant, and he would find ways to see things that other people didn't see, and he'd connect the dots and then he'd say, okay, now you zoom in and you simplify and you focus on the customer experience. And he did that over and over again. And it's one of the great lessons that I think all of us can take advantage of and learn about.
2: But, it, but interestingly enough, um, there were times when even Apple Computer was not very risk tolerant. <laughs> we have to remember they went through phases where they they were very dictatorial at moments, and then other times things opened up a little bit for them.
3: Oh, that's true, uh, and you know it'll it'll happen to even some great new companies. I mean, it just it's bound to happen. It's kind of human nature, and and you uh, you articulated that really well. So uh, it's it's part of the law of large numbers that that uh, the bigger organizations get the less tolerant they are to experiment and try new things.
5: Right. in our
3: culture in the U.S., which is more tolerant than perhaps any other in the world, you know, even we find that our big companies suffer from becoming victims of their own success.
2: Although recently, I have to tell you, I met one of the vice presidents at Coca-Cola, and uh, he claimed that uh, the consumer's tolerance for failure is actually a little bit higher than we might think. Uh, and he happened to mention that Coca-Cola first tried to sell their flavored uh, vitamin water in a can like their other beverages <laughs> and yeah. the consumers hated water in a can uh, they, they were complaining it wasn't carbonated they expected it to be carbonated they had certain expectations with things that were uh, uh, that uh, were delivered to them in a can so uh, coca-cola went back to the drawing board and they came out with a with clear plastic bottles with you know very clear water that we can see today so can a company uh, reverse a, a risk that fails
3: absolutely and, and uh, I described uh people who do that well as adaptive innovators. So we don't all have to be Larry Page, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, uh, but we can be part of this entrepreneurial, try new things, take risks, make mistakes, take advantage of these exponential growth technologies we were talking about earlier. And what you really need is the curiosity and the willingness to experiment and adapt. It's all about not just pure innovation and invention, it's about adaptive innovation. If you think back to uh, what Darwin really talked about with evolution, it wasn't just the survival of the fittest. It was the survival of those species that were able to adapt to a changing environment. And it's no different for us as we look at building businesses.
2: Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. I think in the second hour, I'm going to talk about that. You, you, I am a trained evolutionary biologist. And so when I look at businesses, I am always looking at a continuum of adapting uh, that you can never really stop because uh, if you do stop, the environment's bound to change and uh, you're going to ba- become one of the 99% of the species on the earth that uh, no longer exist. They were simply were not able to uh, adapt efficiently. Now we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we will hear more from John Scully. You're listening to the Costa Report.
7: Are things getting a little messy around the office? At Coast Paper and Supply, we'll meet all your janitorial needs. Mops, dusters, disinfectants? We got them. Can't get rid of that smell in the break room? Try our deodorizer. Carpet stains? We have a cure for that, too. While you're at it, pick up the essentials. Garbage cans and liners, sponges and brooms. Is your company going green? Coast Paper and Supply is offering earth-friendly cleaning and food service alternatives. Our ever-evolving stock includes compostable bowls, plates, cups, and cutlery, not to mention eco-friendly cleaners and biodegradable trash can liners, all at the lowest possible price. So come visit Coast Paper and Supply at 151 Josephine Street, or look us up at coastpapersupplyinc.com. You can also call us at 831-423-3350. That's 831-423-3350.
11: When it comes to selecting a doctor, dentist, or an accountant, we all want to know who is going to take care of us, right? So before you select a gunsmith, I invite you to drop by Del Valle Gunsmithing and get to know us. Hello, I'm Ray Parga, owner of Del Valle Gunsmithing in Marina. I am very proud of the reputation we have earned in our 30 years of service to the Central Coast community of gun owners and soon-to-be gun owners. Drop by and get to know us. We are at 224 Rheindoller in Marina. Here's what you will find happening right now at Del Valle Gunsmithing.
9: Mention you heard Ray on KSEO, and he will cover your California gun registration fees on in-store gun purchases.
11: We all want to know who is going to take care of us, right? When it comes to your handguns and rifles, choose the family-owned gunsmith with a 30-year reputation of excellent service. We are Del Valle Gunsmithing at 224 Rheindoller in Marina. Drop by Del Valle Gunsmithing and get to know us. 831-384-1911. That's 384 384- 1911 or dot gunsmithing.com. gunsmithing.com michael olson here watsonville airport something brand new and exciting and i have the person that's responsible and your name is ella king ella ella's at the airport yeah that's right
8: you got it right
11: what are you going to do to please the pallets of the monterey bay area with ella's at the airport
8: uh, well, we are working with mostly local, organic, sustainable seafoods, grass-fed meats. So you start with that, and from there we build a beautiful meal, be it lunch, dinner, or weekend brunch. I think that from there, we've got you covered.
1: Ella's at the airport also has a great outdoor seating area where you can watch the airplanes come and go, and we also feature a full bar. Ella's at the airport, 100 Aviation Way in Watsonville. Call 831 728 3282 for reservations. That's 728 3282.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is John Scully. As I mentioned uh, in the opening, Mr. Scully, your company, Scully & Brothers, invests and works with a number of innovative companies, so you have to stay on the bleeding edge of innovation. Uh, And you mentioned sensors, but where else do you think we're going to see the most transformation?
3: Well, I think we're going to see the transformation uh, in what's called the infrastructure as a service. If you think back in Silicon Valley, in the early parts of the 21st century, A lot of the venture capital investment went into new technologies, and we're benefiting from those investments as huge industries have emerged with cloud and mobility and data analytics and things of that sort. But what we're seeing now is that new infrastructure is being created, redefining industries that uses technology but aren't necessarily technology companies per se. An example of that would be Uber. Uber is less than five years old. It's valued at $45 billion. Uh, it uses technology to enable drivers in black cars to be able to simplify and deliver a much higher customer experience than was possible by trying to hail a taxi when it's raining out in San Francisco or in Santa Cruz. And so uh, infrastructure as a service, whether it's uh, Airbnb or whether it's some of these courier services that say they're going to uh, enable you to order something on e-commerce and get it delivered to your home within an hour, These are infrastructure as a service. They're using technology. They aren't technology companies per se. And that's a huge opportunity. And we're seeing every industry is going to be open to that kind of change. And McKinsey and Company calls it the digitization of work. And we've seen large corporations like Cisco and Intel and GE have said that they're actually betting their future on the digitization of work. And that's a lot of uh, what we see with the reintroduction. Uh, introduction of manufacturing back to the U.S. using uh, these new technologies, and by the way, using a lot of sensors and robotics as well.
2: Well, that is quite a change because in the past, uh, service companies have had a very difficult time getting capitalization.
3: That's right. And now we're seeing that suddenly if you rethink what is a service company as a disruptor that can dramatically change the entire industry, like the taxi industry uh, was an industry of about 140 billion million in San Francisco. Well, since Uber was introduced, uh, Uber's revenue alone in San Francisco was almost $500 million. And so you not only can replace something that was done before or expand the market that was there before, but you can do it in a very innovative way. And infrastructure as a service is a big opportunity. But let me take you in, in even a different direction to show you how how wide the opportunity is. You mentioned earlier that you're an evolutionary biologist by training. Yes. Nothing is more interesting to me than the opportunities to reinvent medicine as we've known it. Uh, It's called precision medicine. And what it means is that we're now able to think about using big data analytics, uh, using uh, the human genome sequencing, which companies like Illumina have gotten down to 37 hours, Uh, There are people who are now working on um, getting that down to less than a minute, uh, getting the cost down from $1,000 a person to sequence a human genome down to uh, less than $100 and it will go much lower than that. And then you start to think about sensors and being able to embed miniaturized sensors uh, inside a human and being able to track, for example, the genomics, uh, the number of genes. As you know, we have about 26,000 genes. We have two million proteins and the ability to monitor our proteins. So, for example, take ferritin, which is an iron protein. That protein is off. You can create a customized, personalized um, medication for an individual. And we're already seeing, when you look what's happening with some of the stem cell uh, research that's going on to be able to use transduction to take Uh, white blood cells, and then be able to uh, then convert that into what are called cancer-killing T cells. And using both uh, stem cell therapy and using uh, cancer-killing T cells, we're seeing entirely new approaches to medicine. And all of this is being enabled by many of these same technologies I was talking about earlier, cloud, sensors, big data analytics.
2: Well, it's interesting, you know, big data analytics is really leading to predictive analytics, which in turn is creating this field of predictive medicine, if you will. Uh, When you look at the breakthroughs that we've had in genomic sciences and now new sensor technology, and then we haven't even begun, you and I haven't even begun talking about nanobots, which are now being miniaturized to the size of a human cell. I mean when nanobots can be programmed to eliminate uh, pre-Alzheimer's plaques and cancer cells medicine will be you know diseases will be treated from inside the body uh, and and I I would venture to say that that this idea that we're I- invading the body from the outside in is going to look pretty prehistoric.
3: Well uh, that's that's such a great uh, uh introduction to a field. We could spend the whole show just talking about that. I think it's so interesting what's going on with the use of predictive analytics and being able to look at things from cell addressable uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies to uh, being able to, you know, as you said, actually go in and think about medicine at the molecular level. Uh,
2: Absolutely.
3: We're gonna look back at, at uh, medicine um, 50 years from now and say, what were we doing with chemotherapy and radiation?
2: Oh, well, the idea that we were lopping off body parts to cure people. If that isn't going to look savage, I don't know what is.
3: <laughs>
2: it, it's going to look pretty bad. Uh, but, but you know, when you're an evolutionary biologist, you're looking at the long haul. Of human history, and uh, it really is a humbling experience to know that a million years from now, you know, we are the Neanderthals. <laughs> so, so I, I, I never, yeah, I, n- I, never have to worry about getting too arrogant about technology. Um, but I, I do want to bring up one other thing. Uh, last year, you also launched a low-cost smartphone.
3: Yes, uh, we, we uh, have just started that, and it's a Silicon Valley-designed uh, smartphone. Uh, it's, it's not really designed to compete against Apple or high-end Samsung or any product like that. In fact, it's not even intended for the United States. It's for the emerging markets. And the reason is that we're in an era of commoditization of the technologies that go into smartphones. And it is now t- totally practical to build a very high-quality smartphone, 4G smartphone, uh, that you can sell for under $150. And we are th- doing that, but our differentiation, because, by the way, there are literally hundreds of uh, Chinese factories that are working on products exactly like this. So if someone would say, "Well, why in the world would you go into that business?"
2: Well, I'm glad you we're... brought that out. I was going to ask you: Are you late to this market, uh, and and why why not uh, introduce it in the U.S.?
3: Well, well, f- f- first of all, I, th- I think we uh, we probably wouldn't be successful in the, in the U.S. The U.S. doesn't need this, but in the emerging markets where you have uh, almost 40, 50% of the population is under 30 years of age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these people have a different buying habit than we do. They they, they they don't have personal computers. They have smartphones. They have tablets. And they buy them more than one time a year. And so there's a real opportunity to bring to them uh, products that are designed with the care and attention to fit and finish. And, and uh, remember, this is fashion electronics. Uh, so we are trying to say, can we bring Silicon Valley design into the emerging markets and give them something at price points that they can afford? They might uh, look for, for a product like an Apple iPhone. I mean, that's what I use, an iPhone 6, but it's just out of their price range. And so the emerging markets are, we believe, still an opportunity. No guarantees of success, as I told you, but uh, we're, we have a f- first-class team working on it and uh, we're enthusiastic about the early results.
2: So you're marrying... Uh, portability of the phone with fashion so to speak and at a lower price point Uh, and and it was very interesting that you chose the Chinese and Singapore market and then I believe, if I have this right, you plan to expand into Africa, South America, and Eastern Europe uh, as well. Now, uh, we're going to have to get ready to take another break uh, but I I have to tell you, I was absolutely fascinated by this cell phone because I'm not, I I understand why you didn't introduce it into the United States. Uh, I, I immediately understood why that wasn't the case. The markets overseas are larger and uh and also um there is a um, a more uh, receptive market in the i think overseas uh and they are looking for less expensive products as well uh but uh i do i, I do think there's probably a market here i don't think everybody can afford an, an apple iphone but uh we're going to take another break stay right where you are we'll be right back with more from john scully you're listening to the costa report If you're wondering what to do with all that data you're creating, do I have an offer for you? Tableau is drag-and-drop software that people of any skill level can use to analyze and turn data into something actionable. That's right. I said actionable. And isn't that what all that data is for? With Tableau, you can connect to any data in virtually any format and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, even big data sources are instantly combined into usable charts, graphs, reports, and dashboards. People can analyze data and and drag-and-drop at 10 times the speed of a traditional business intelligence system. But the most impressive thing about tableau is that anyone can use it and just to prove the point you can get a free 14-day trial from tableau just by mentioning you heard this ad but do it now because this offer won't last for your free 14-day trial visit tableau at dot com slash costa that's tableau.com slash costa tableau software what's your data trying to tell you
8: do you love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate.
6: Is your internet connection slow? Do you experience outages or dread calling customer support? How about your latency? Etheric networks can help you. Networks is the Bay Area's locally owned alternative to DSL satellite and cable. Etheric provides fast, reliable, symmetric internet via our wholly owned network of towers covering the Bay Area from Salinas to Santa Cruz to Sausalito. We install a two-foot dish on your building and point it to one of our towers to connect you directly to the major data centers of Silicon Valley. Etheric directly connects to Tier 1 companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon to ensure high-quality service from your building to the world. KSCO, Residential Special. Residential service up to 10 megabits per second, symmetric, that's up and down for $85 a month and $199 installation. With guaranteed minimum speeds and uptime, unlike our competitors. Etheric Networks. Call 650 399 4200. That's 650 399 4200. Etheric.net. That's E T H E R I C.net. Hi, it's
5: Charlie from The Garden Company, your locally owned garden center. Did you know that fall is really the best time for planting? The soil is warm, the days are cooler, and El Nino rains are on the way. Perfect conditions for fast root growth on new, drought-tolerant perennials, shrubs, trees, vines, and ground covers. We have so many beautiful choices, native to dry climates around the world, and a great selection of succulents. Enjoy the early darkness in your garden with colorful, glowing, hand-blown art glass garden stakes with solar-powered LED lights. And let us show you the best organic seeds and seedlings for an extended harvest from your fall and winter vegetable garden. Visit the Garden Company Nursery and Gift Shop and see why Good Times readers voted us Best Garden Supply. We're at 2218 Mission Street, across from Safeway on the west side of Santa Cruz. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thegardenco. The Garden Company Nursery and Gift Shop, proud member of Think Local First.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is John Scully. And uh, before we move on, uh, do you mind if I ask you how were you able to drop the price so substantially on the on the mobile device that you introduced in China and Singapore?
3: Well, the way we were able to do that is we already own a billion dollar supply chain uh, company in Singapore that covers Southeast Asia and India and we were able to take advantage of our credit financing uh, skills we already had an infrastructure that we could leverage uh, other resources from. So it, we could come in at a, a price point point that and make money that other companies just couldn't do because they uh, had to carry so much infrastructure. If you look at the large companies who had already dominated the smartphone world in the emerging markets, yes. uh, companies like HTC and Nokia and others, uh, they were starting to lose money. And we realized that... Um, if you invest in R&D and if you invest in um, big overhead, you can't make money at these price points. But we didn't have big overhead because we had another business we could leverage off of. And so we had a a very uh, light overhead. We did not invest in R&D. We went to um, large uh, manufacturers who already had the skills, uh, had already been building products for other companies. And we could basically reskin those products and add our software on top of Android. And it gave us the ability to uh, have a very low cost model to come out with very, very high quality phones.
2: Well, that answers that question. (laughs) uh, During the break, uh, one of our engineers came up and said, listen, do I have to go to China to get one of these? And I said, probably so. Uh, And he said, well, how were they able to do it? And I said, well, uh Mr. Scully's a sharp guy, and uh if there's a way to enter a market uh, a mature market and uh bring about change, uh, he's probably the right steward to do it uh, now you have made the made the point that uh, moonshots are often the result of a higher pursuit, which then later becomes uh commercially viable and profitable so from this perspective the the people that are responsible for the moonshot They seem to be driven by something larger than money. What do you think?
3: They're driven by a noble cause. And I learned this when I came from the soft drink industry where we were driven by trying to beat our competitor. Uh, We didn't know what a noble cause was. And then I I got to know Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And we would sit around in the evenings and talk about where they saw the personal computer industry going. And they never talked about how much money they were going to make. They always talked about how they were going to change the world. And the one thing they agreed on without any question was that the world was going to see an entirely new generation of computers that would be incredibly personal, focused on the knowledge worker that Peter Drucker had defined a decade earlier, and give them tools. So Steve Jobs called them tools for the mind. And while they agreed on the noble cause, they had completely different strategies. Uh, Bill Gates was all about creating a platform that would uh, reach out to anybody who wanted to build a personal computer and they'd pay them back a licensing fee for the software. And Steve Jobs said, absolutely no. He said, I need to control everything, the hardware, the software, the design, and it has to be proprietary in every way. And Steve Jobs uh, was right whenever there was innovation that required uh, a real breakthrough. And Bill Gates was right when it meant uh, expanding out and taking advantage of that innovation to a broader market. And we're seeing that all over again with Google and Apple.
2: So is that where moonshots originate? Do they originate from a noble cause? I think
3: the big ones do. They really do. Um, That's why I think you see that uh, people like Elon Musk are talking about, um, take the electric car. Imagine if Elon Musk had tried to do this in partnership with one of the big auto manufacturers in Detroit. I mean, it sure wouldn't look like the Tesla. <laughs> it sure wouldn't uh, um, be, I think, as, as beautiful a design as it's turned out to be. And the irony is that uh, Tesla has about ha- half the market cap uh, value of General Motors, and it's just a young company. So innovation does get its rewards, uh, and it does take the uh, genius innovators uh, to define a major new era, but there's an opportunity for the rest of us, the adaptive innovators, to be able to learn the lessons from that. And that's what I tried to write about in Moonshot. Moonshot is not an autobiography. Moonshot is uh, the lessons learned by me and by many others, the entrepreneurs I work with, um, many I just know and respect, that what is it that we learn that can be generalized and applied by other people who want to be entrepreneurs who want to build their own breakthrough companies and be adaptive innovators. So uh, I felt that when I go to business schools, Rebecca, they are talking about case histories of experiences that senior executives have in large organizations. And yet I see so many young entrepreneurs skip over business school because (laughs) business schools don't teach them the things they need to know. How do you raise capital? How do you recruit a team to believe in what you believe in? How do you get proof of concept? How do you go from proof of concept to expansion? How do you deal about a crisis? We all have them. If you're taking risks and your back is against the wall and how do you pivot, come out of it alive? And these are the types of things that entrepreneurs shared with me, their experiences and what we tried to put into some principles that could be useful to other people who want to build their own companies in the future.
2: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because when we talk about a noble cause and we talk about how the Steve Jobs or or how Google came about um and and we look at the origins of these moonshots and these disruptive and and uh, really sea changes if you will that occur um is there anything that governments can do to encourage or discourage that kind of risk taking, or 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 going after moonshots. I mean, if Obama called you into the Oval Office tomorrow, what would what advice would you give him to spur innovation?
3: Here's what I would tell him. I, I would say, Mr. President, uh, the all the jobs in the U.S. are created by small and medium sized companies. So when the government gives you statistics on job creation, uh, some people may think that government's creating jobs. They don't. Uh, They're actually uh, eliminating jobs in the government. They may think big companies create jobs. They actually don't. They're eliminating jobs as well. All of the job creation is coming from small and medium business. And I would say, Mr. President, we need to think about how do we create a clearer runway for entrepreneurs to prosper because their prosperity is going to be translated into the prosperity growth of the country. And that means that, Government should focus on how do we educate people. So I think, frankly, uh, a good idea of extending more free education in community colleges uh, does make sense. So it opens it up for more people to get education beyond the high school level. On the other hand, I think government needs to get out of the way and reduce a lot of the obstacles that entrepreneurs have when they try to start companies. And so uh, I think the challenge that people in government have is that They don't realize that large organizations, and it doesn't make any difference whether it's free enterprise organizations or government organizations, large organizations have built in barriers to want to change, built in barriers to want to innovate. And so you're not going to have innovation in the government. You're going to have innovation with entrepreneurs. And government ought to say, what can I do to help? Not uh, what can I do as a government? uh, ourselves to be innovative.
2: Well, I think there's probably a lot of listeners that are nodding their head up and down right now. If I know our listeners, they'll be emailing me and saying, have John Scully come back again. (laughs) Unfortunately, we are out of time for this hour. But uh, before we say goodbye, I want to thank you uh, for your wonderful book, Moonshot, and also taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Thank you, Mr. Scully.
3: Thank you, Rebecca. Nice to be with you. And you can get Moonshot at Amazon. We have audio books. We have e-books and hardcover books. And thanks a lot for letting me come and talk about it.
2: Absolutely. Come back soon. If your station is leaving us after this hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with John Scully, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook Twitter, LinkedIn. We're all over the internet. And if you joined our broadcast later, missed the interview with John Scully, and you want to listen to what uh, previous guests had to say, remember you can always download episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our YouTube channel. And you'll also find our weekly radio blog posted every week on our webpage. The blog captures the headline news from every interview, so if you ever have to miss a program, and I hope you won't, you can still read the blog. It's short to the and guaranteed to make you feel a whole lot smarter. My guest next week is former Senator from Texas, Phil Graham, who says Clinton found a way to work with the Republican Congress and Ronald Reagan never let partisan crossfires stop him. Find out why Graham says Washington is on the move again. Don't miss Senator Phil Graham next week on the only weekly news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to The Costa Report.